This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. If you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our our text tonight will be verses 30 and 31, but I want us to start reading at verse 26. Paul says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. A great passage of Scripture. You know, there really is, there's nothing better than to meditate upon uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, to think about Christ, to, as it were, behold him by faith. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, uh, so then, holy brethren, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of your calling. That same writer tells us in chapter 12, that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. The Apostle Paul tells us that we all, with unveiled face, are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed from glory to glory. There really is, there's nothing better than to think upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Some of you know that my favorite uh, Puritan writer is John Owen. And Owen thought he was dying. And of course, in the 1600s, if you got a cold, you thought you might die. And Owen thought he was dying. And so in order to prepare his soul for heaven, he wrote a series of meditations that he later published when he didn't die, called The Glory of Christ. And Owen wrote these words. He says, only a sight of his glory and nothing else will truly satisfy God's people. The hearts of believers are like magnetized needles which cannot rest until it's pointing north. So also a believer magnetized by the love of Christ will always be restless until he or she comes to Christ and beholds his glory. Beholding the glory of Christ is one of the greatest privileges that believers are capable of in this world or even in that which is to come. And so tonight we're going to look at two verses, 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. And it's, it's my prayer that we would behold Christ and that we would fix our eyes 
on Jesus. I really can't think of a better thing to do one day before the year ends. There's no better way to end your year, begin your year, and sustain your year by looking to Christ. So we've been, we've been um, kind of plodding along. No one can ever accuse us of going too quickly, I suppose. Just plodding along through 1 Corinthians. And we saw the, the um, Paul's argument really starts in 110. He hears the uh, reports of division. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas, so forth. I am of Christ. And that uh, Paul begins to diagnose, and he doesn't diagnose it in the way that we typically would maybe address divisions within the church. He begins actually to focus on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why there were divisions was because of pride, and the reason there was pride is because they had forgotten the cross. And so Paul is focused on the cross. And so in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, Paul expounds in, in really one of the most uh, powerful portions of Scripture dealing with the cross, uh, the cross as the power of God and the wisdom of God. And you have to remember that, that, that Paul's perspective on the cross is that now the world's going to look at it and it's, the world is going to see weakness, but really, the cross is God's power. The world's going to look at the cross and see it as foolishness, but really, the cross is God's wisdom. And so the cross is wisdom from God and power from God. And of course, the cross standing for Christ and his sacrificial death in the gospel. And then one twenty-six to 31, which we've been considering, Paul moves from the cross as the power of God and the wisdom of God to divine calling, which is also a demonstration of the power of God and the wisdom of God. And in fact, what Paul does is he reminds the Corinthians uh, that those who are saved by the cross, which according to the world's perspective is weak and foolish... Those who are saved by the power of the cross are themselves, by the world's standards, weak and foolish. Now, the problem with the Corinthians is, um, as my dear beloved friend Doug Bushhausen used to say, their problem was is that they were drinking their own bath water. Okay? Um, and they were, they were too full of themselves. They had, they had this idea that they were so spiritual, so mature. They were just, they, um, they were filled with knowledge and wisdom. And Paul actually is reminding them that such a self-perception is contrary to the very gospel message itself. God typically doesn't save the rich, the powerful, the influential. He actually saves those who, according to the world's standards, are foolish and weak. And so Paul reminds them that not only is the message of the cross a message, according to the world, of foolishness and weakness, but it is also a message that saves people who are, according to the world's standards, foolish and weak. And so when we hear things, for those of you that are heading off to college or in college and you get the joy of being assigned to read uh, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and you read him uh, blasting the Christian faith as that which is suitable for only weak people, then you say, 
he at least got one thing right. The gospel is for weak people. And I'm weak. I need a savior. And so Paul is reminding them, think back to what you were. Think back to how God saved you. Think to how that message came. This is not the message for the rich and the famous. This is the message for the down and outers. This is a message for those who know that they can't help themselves. And so he's going to wrap up this this paragraph by showing them that what God has done for them in calling them is really the most magnificent demonstration of wisdom that could ever be displayed. In fact, in verses 30 and 31, he's going to try to, he's going to kind of move to a positive angle, 26 up through 29. He's kind of been putting the negative spin on what they were. Now he's going to show them what they have by divine calling in Christ. And then chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 will be the preaching of the cross, which is also the wisdom and power of God. Now, if you take a look at verse 30, the uh, New American Standard says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't think that that's actually a bad translation at all, but the Greek text is so much shorter, more concise, and actually more vivid, and it's just this, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. But of him you are in Christ Jesus. And, and what Paul's going to do here is he's, he's demonstrating to the Corinthians that uh, both the source and the cause of them being in Christ is all of God. Of him, you are in Christ Jesus, is to say this way, that their existence and ours in Christ comes from God. In, in a real sense, you could say that what Paul is, is saying here, he said in Romans chapter 11 and verse 36, but of him and through him and unto him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. And so God is the source of us being in Christ. He is therefore the ultimate cause of us being in Christ. In other words, it's not only from him that we're in Christ, it is because of him that we are in Christ. I was talking to a, a fellow a couple of weeks ago, and he'd spent a number of years in prison. And he said, when I heard the gospel, nobody had to convince me about depravity nor divine election. He says, I knew what I was. And I knew 
Nobody had to argue the doctrines of grace with me because I knew what I was and I knew that I had come to Christ for one reason and one reason only, and that was the free, sovereign grace of Almighty God. And so it is of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. Notice throughout this passage, first of all, God is the one who has saved, verse 21. J.I. Packer, in a a, a classic essay that was the introduction to a reprint of one of John Owen's books, said this, "'This is the gospel message, plain and simple. God.'" saves sinners. That's the message. That simple. And so God is the one who has saved, verse 21. God is the one who has called, verses 24 and 26. And God is the one who has chosen, verses 27 and 28. Now, here's, here's the, really the wonderful thing about what Paul's doing here is he has just identified the Corinthians as those who were not, those who were the nothings and the nobodies, but now, because of God's doing, they have become something. And what they have become is all of God's grace. And so, I, you know, I stand here tonight and absolutely unashamed and unapologetic that I believe in the doctrines of sovereign grace. What else would you preach? Right? And you know it's not the concoction of men because men, men don't make stuff like this up. Like you're so bad that you're absolutely helpless unless God does something. That's not the concoction of, of, of a human brain. That's divine revelation. And so Paul says, but of him, and then those you are in Christ Jesus. The you are is now in contrast to the things which were not. Of course, them as the despised, the weak, and the powerful. But now of him, you are right now in Christ Jesus. The old uh, Scottish theologian of a hundred years ago or so James Stewart says that the heart of St. Paul's religion is union with Christ. 164 times the Apostle Paul uses the, the prepositional phrase, in Christ or in him. And that little expression, in Christ or in him, is, is, is um, conveying what we would call the union with Christ. And so for Paul... The idea of being in union with Christ is, is, is in a sense the most comprehensive way that Paul can explain what it means to be a Christian. If, if you think about it, the, the very center of Paul's view of salvation is this idea of being in Christ. And so um, Burkhoff writes, I love this definition of union with Christ. He says, this union with Christ may be defined as that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ 
and his people by virtue of which he is the source of their life and their strength, of their blessedness, and of their salvation. So think about this for a moment. When, when does union with Christ begin? Before the foundations of the world. Think about Paul's words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as he, God, chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Union with Christ is something that that begins in eternity past, but then also think of uh, the way that Paul describes union with Christ in Romans chapter 6. So that union with Christ is not just the sphere in which God chose you before the foundations of the world, but union with Christ is also the, um, the redemptive reality that when Christ died, you died. When Christ was buried, you were buried. When Christ was raised, you were raised. Why? Because you've been united to Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, buried with him in death through baptism so that we would be raised up with him to walk in newness of life. And so union with Christ is not just, uh, in a sense, the um, a union that begins in eternity past. The Father actually sees that attachment, that union with Christ, um, it being manifested through Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and even his present session at the right hand of the Father. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7 tells us that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So even now we're in union with Jesus Christ. We have been forgiven in him. So Paul says, in him you have redemption through his blood. That is the forgiveness of sins. And one of these days, we will be resurrected and glorified in him. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22, in Adam. See, that's, that's an in phrase that, that is not all that great, right? In Adam, all die. In Christ, all shall be made alive. And so this is a comprehensive expression by Paul in a sense that is the union with Christ is the foundation of our election. It's the foundation of our justification. It's the foundation of our reconciliation. It's the foundation of our future hope. It is absolutely comprehensive. And so one old, old commentator, Frederick Godet, says in this relation of union with Christ. The believer can appropriate all that Christ was and thus become what he, the believer, was not and what he could not become of himself. That's what Paul's going to actually get to here in a moment. That, that relationship of being united with Christ actually so transforms us that we become that which we were not, and we become that which we could have never become 
on our own. And so our salvation is is summed up as being in Christ Jesus, and being in Christ Jesus is solely, wholly, completely because of him. God is the source. God is the cause. And then Paul says, who, speaking of Christ, became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, what Paul, remember, the Corinthians were incredibly enamored with this idea of Sophia, of wisdom, all right? But not wisdom like we think of in terms of biblical wisdom. They were enamored with the kind of wisdom that had captivated the hearts of Greek philosophers and rhetoricians and, and uh, the academics of the day. And so what they had done is, is the, the Corinthians had basically taken the message of the gospel that they heard from Paul and, and then began to put their, their own little spins on it and, and begin to add their own little accretions to it so that it would be actually more uh, palatable, uh, more respectable, Isn't it amazing what we do to try to make the gospel respectable? To make it seem impressive. From the world's perspective, there will never be anything about the true gospel that is impressive. And the minute that the world is impressed with our gospel, it's because we're not presenting the gospel. We don't have a mandate to change the aroma of the gospel. We don't have a mandate to to spruce it up and make it fancier to the uh, academic world or uh, more palatable to the entertainment world. And so Paul says, here's, here's what happened. When God took you and, and, and put you in Christ Jesus, you went from being a nothing to now being someone who has everything. Now, think about this. Now, you, you know, this, this is the thing that, that just chaps me about the prosperity gospel, which is really no gospel, all right? It's a false gospel. But the thing about the prosperity gospel is that it, its message says God wants you to be wealthy and God wants you to, uh, to have perfect health. I mean, nobody would mistake us for prosperity preachers. We got so many sick people around here uh, that nobody would think that we actually, or we just lacked faith, right? And so here's the prosperity gospel that says God wants you to be wealthy. And here's, here's the truth, is that you actually have more in Christ Jesus than you could ever imagine. You have unfathomable riches. You could drive a Pinto 
and have unfathomable riches in Christ Jesus. If you drive a Pinto, my apologies. You could drive a gremlin and actually have the unfathomable riches in Christ Jesus. Because the poorest of the poor, the, 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 the lowest of the low, the down and outer, the downcast, the outcast, those who by the world's standards who have nothing, if they have Christ Jesus, they have everything. C.S. Lewis put it like this. The one who has Christ and has everything has no more than the one who only has Christ. And so he says, Christ became, notice this, to us, wisdom from God. And so here's the Corinthians, and they're trying to, they're trying to put their own wisdom spin on the gospel. And Paul says, listen, you are so misguided. Christ actually, the minute that God saved you, Christ became the wisdom of God for you. You don't need the world's wisdom. You don't need what impresses the, uh, the entertainment world. You don't need any of that because what you have, you have in Christ. And so wisdom to us from God. In other words, the crucified Christ is the very manifestation of the wisdom of God. And to have Christ is to have the wisdom of God. In God's kingdom... The wisest, the smartest, if you will, are not those that necessarily have the high IQ. They are the ones who have the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says wisdom from God. So the crucified Christ is the manifestation of God's wisdom. Now here's, here's the thing that Paul is, is getting at. So the Corinthians are hankering after this worldly wisdom. And Paul is saying, listen, the, the, the wisdom, the real wisdom, the wisdom that you need is actually not from yourselves. It itself is the gift of God. God has made Christ for you to be wisdom from God. Now, if you think back to the book of Galatians, what was, what was the Judaizers' problem? Is They believed that they needed to rely on what in order to be right with God? Their works, right? So the Judaizers were believing and teaching they needed to rely on their works. The Corinthians simply believed they needed to rely on their own wisdom, and in both cases, of course, God's work is a gift. And so uh, David Garland says, humans cannot boast before God of their wisdom any more than they can of their works. As it is through the renunciation of righteousness that man attains righteousness, so it is through the surrender of his own wisdom that he receives wisdom. Did you get that? How do you actually receive righteousness? Well, the first step in receiving real righteousness is actually renouncing your own righteousness. 
And it's in renouncing your own righteousness that you receive real righteousness. Well, the same thing goes with wisdom. The first step in really attaining true wisdom from God is renouncing your own wisdom. Your own bankrupt wisdom. This is is hard for us. This is hard for us. I would say, I've I've always been of the opinion that we come into this world with a natural sense of reliance upon our own works to be made right with God, right? In a sense, that's natural religion, depending on my own works to be right with God. But this got me thinking that not only do we come into this world dependent on our own works to be right with God, but we come into this world actually with this innate sense of self-sufficiency depending upon our own wisdom to get us through this world. To be successful, to, you know, to make sure that we're able to climb the ladder and to be better than the other person and, 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 and to achieve success. And we are people that not only doggedly rely on our own works, but we doggedly rely on our own wisdom. We all have the tendency to think, we're the smartest guy in the room. Have, have you ever been, this will depend on what you do for a living, but have you ever been in a meeting and you're just thinking to yourself as you look around and hear these people talk that you're just, you're just cursed by being surrounded by idiots. You don't need to raise your hand, all right? Now, maybe, (laughs) I won't say who raised both hands. I'm not saying that it may not in part be true, okay? But isn't it interesting that our propensity is not to give anyone else the benefit of the doubt, but to always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt that we really are the smartest person around. And what Paul is saying is, listen, if you want wisdom from God, you need to renounce your own wisdom. You need to say, Lord, you know what? I I really am, I really am at heart a fool. I really am at heart. I, I have nothing, I have nothing to commend me to you. Not my own works, not my own wisdom. In a sense, the wisdom of God is is the sum of his saving work for us in Jesus Christ. That's why in, in God's economy, those who best understand the gospel and know Christ the best are really wise. And so what does Paul tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3? And that from childhood... You have known the sacred writings, the sacred scriptures, which give you the wisdom that leads to eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so wisdom is the sum of God's saving work. And now if you look at the text, you'll see that Christ has become wisdom for us from God. And then we have three more phrases, and righteousness and sanctification and 
redemption. Now, um, I, I put this in your notes. This is from Gordon Fee. God has made him the crucified, now risen one, to become wisdom for us, but not of the kind with which the Corinthians are now enamored. True wisdom is to be understood in terms of the three illustrative metaphors which refer to the saving event of Christ. In other words, Paul is not saying that God has made Christ these four things for us. He's saying God has made Christ wisdom for us and these three things now that follow illustrate what that wisdom is. So here's the content, if you will, of wisdom from God in Christ. And without going into detail, there's... there's, um, some grammatical clues in the text that that's exactly what Paul means, is that wisdom is related to Jesus Christ. And then these other three phrases now are telling us, illustrating, defining for us what that wisdom now is. Righteousness. Righteousness. Now, here, most certainly, Paul's reference to righteousness is in terms of forensic righteousness or legal imputation, okay? Remember, in, in, in the Bible, there are, there are two primary ways to use the term righteousness. On the one hand, you could use it in, in terms of a very ethical statement, that is conforming to God's standards, so it's an ethical uh, expression, righteousness, like that. There's another sense, though, where righteousness is not an ethical quality as much as it is a forensic or legal declaration. So what we're talking about here is we're talking about justification. Justification isn't God making you into a righteous person. Justification is, for Christ's sake, him declaring you to be a righteous person. Okay? Uh, in other words, the idea of, of righteousness is the, think of it this way, the foundational redemptive event which makes you have a right standing with God. Okay? Now... <clears throat> We talk about this a lot. And there's a reason why we talk about this a lot. It's because if you get this part wrong, the consequences are disastrous. Okay? If, if you think that righteousness, which makes you right with God, is some ethical quality in your life, then what you're going to be thinking is that you're right with God because of the stuff you do. And the Bible teaches us that no one can ever be right with God because of the stuff they do. (laughs) Paul says it like this, repeatedly, through the works of of the law, no flesh is justified in his sight. There is nobody that can do enough to be right with God. 
period. I, I, I want to make this as clear as possible. Take all of the good works of the saintliest person you could ever imagine. In our era, who would, who would that be? Mother Teresa, right? Mother Teresa. And without taking anything away from her humanitarian efforts and her philanthropy and without having any clues to the condition of her heart, let me just say that all of Mother Teresa's good works do not, did not, cannot, could not make her right with God. Okay? All right? Just, I, want, I, want you to under, I want you to make sure you understand this because what we, what we have the tendency to do is we have the tendency to think that, that God somehow must grade on a curve, but it's probably a bell curve because you've got people that are like really super duper good and then you've got people that are really super duper bad and then as long as I fall somewhere in the middle and the good outweighs the bad just enough, then I'm okay with God. And the Bible actually tells us that all of our righteous deeds, Isaiah 64, 4, all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. And so you no matter how many poor people you feed, no matter how many homeless people you take care of, all of those things are good things. But understand, they're not good in the sense of winning the approval and saving favor of God. And so that so if if we miss righteousness here because we think it's ethical stuff I do, then we'll be lost. There's another kind of righteousness that is a righteousness which is completely outside of us. That has nothing to do with what's going on inside of us. It is a righteousness that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Who who is the only human being who has ever perfectly obeyed God his entire life other than the Lord Jesus Christ? There is no other human being who has been without sin and holy and completely righteous in the sight of God other than the Lord Jesus. And so through Jesus' obedience to the Father, he actually wins for us a righteousness that is completely outside of us so that, here's the imagery, if, think about, um, think about having a big robe. Okay, big, white, spotless robe, gleaming white. And imagine uh, Steve Nugent, okay? Steve Nugent has been working all day and, and he's filthy from head to toe and his, and his clothes are ragged and smelly and disgusting and sweaty and filthy, 
Molly will not get within a hundred feet of him. That's the condition of us. And God says, I'm going to take this robe of righteousness and I'm going to wrap it around you so that what I see is not your filth, not your stench, not your, your, your horrific, putrid corruption. But what I will see is that robe. Let me just tell you, that is the only hope you have. Period. The only hope. The only hope. If you say, you know what? I like the robe, but I was thinking maybe if, if, if I did a little bit of uh, like seamstress work on it and gave it a little bit of my own character and flair, God says, no, don't touch it. It's just the way I want it. And so he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we would become the righteousness of God in him. And so when Paul says righteousness, he's talking about the very foundation upon which a person is right with God. And so it is being clothed, it is having the righteous standing of Jesus Christ imputed to your account forensically, legally. That's why you're right with God. You know what that means? It means that if you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then you are as acceptable to Almighty God as his own son. That should blow your mind. Now, That's not the only thing. Notice what the next thing is. What is it? And sanctification. Now, what (laughs) I think that this is really important for us because as wonderful, magnificent, gripping, captivating as imputed righteousness, justification is for us, as exhilarating as it is, the fact is, is that the Bible teaches that those whom God does that for, he also then begins the inward transformation so that you cannot say, well, I am just a lousy, wretched person, but that's okay. I'm justified. I do whatever I want, but that's okay. I'm justified. No, those who are given righteousness in Jesus Christ also are given sanctification. That is holiness. That is God begins to work in them in, through, and because of Jesus Christ to work in their life so their life becomes increasingly, progressively, if you will, consistent with the gospel. So righteousness is that which is outside of us as a gift of God in Christ. Holiness or sanctification is that which Christ does in us. 
I've told you 614 or 15 times. The whole world turns on prepositions. Righteousness is what God does for us. Sanctification is what God does in us. God is concerned that we be growing into the likeness of his son. Now, am I secure in the imputed righteousness that's been given to me in Christ? And the answer is yes. In fact, it is that security that is the highest motivation for me to pursue holiness and to become conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. A person that's not concerned about growing in their faith and becoming more conformed to the image of Christ and growing in holiness is a person who has no clue about the beauty of the gospel and imputed righteousness. Next word, and redemption. And redemption. Now, th- this, is, this is great. Redemption is one of Paul's favorite terms. He uses it so many times. And, of course, redemption is the idea of um, deliverance from slavery through the payment of a ransom price. Okay? That's, that's the idea of redemption, is deliverance from being a slave through the payment of a price. Okay? Now... <clears throat> In Paul's day, in the Greco-Roman world, the word redemption would have been a word that was um, in use, and it would have had a very specific usage, and that is for slaves who had been liberated, okay, manumitted because of a price that had been paid. A lutrosis, ransom price, paid, which then effected their apolutrosis, their redemption. Okay? Now, I have no doubt that that's probably at least in Paul's mind to some degree because it's such a vivid picture. Um, you see the, 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 the slave on the slave block and somebody comes and pays the price and then actually gives them their freedom. That's, that's the image. But when Paul uses the word redemption, the primary thing that's going on in his mind is not the uh, liberation of slaves in the Roman world, but redemption for Paul has Old Testament roots. In fact, the great Old Testament act of redemption is what God does for the children of Israel at the Exodus. He actually delivers them from the house of what? Bondage in the land of Egypt. And he delivers them, bringing them out by his mighty right arm through Moses. Now... That very act points us to something, right? 
And what that act points us to is to what Jesus Christ accomplished for us in the ultimate exodus, in the ultimate act of redemption. And uh, and so, you know, you read the book of Exodus and you read uh, the plagues and then you get to chapter 14 and the children of Israel are, are right up at the Red Sea and the Egyptian army now is coming after them and, and God who just has this unbelievable flair for the dramatic, right? Stand still. That, that's counterintuitive. You would think maybe he'd at least say, start swimming. Stand still and behold the salvation of God. And then what does God do? Tells Moses, raise your staff, raises his staff. And then the, the sea parts and the children of Israel go through. And then, of course, God drowns Pharaoh's army. And as you read the story, that seems like the whole point. And yet, really, what God is doing is he's telling us, this was pretty awesome. Right? I mean, if you've ever seen the Ten Commandments, you know how awesome it must have been, okay? But it doesn't compare to the exodus to be accomplished by Jesus outside of the gates of Jerusalem. In fact, an interesting little sidebar is that in Luke's account of the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9, And verse 37, when Jesus is on the mountain and Moses and Elijah appear, Luke says, and he was speaking to them about his exodus. Our translations actually translate the word departure. That's what exodus means. But but Luke uses the word exodus. What Jesus was going to do was he was going, but why? Because he is the one who's greater than Moses. And so not only do we have a greater deliverer than Moses, but you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so Christ himself is our deliverer. I love this uh, quotation from Gordon Fee. It says, Wisdom does not have to do with getting smart, nor with status or rhetoric. God's wisdom, the real thing, has to do with salvation through Christ Jesus. Indeed, divine wisdom rests ultimately in God's outsmarting all forms of merely human wisdom and in doing so with what for them is altogether foolish. In a community where, quote, wisdom was a part of higher spirituality, divorce from ethical consequences, Paul says that God has made Christ to become wisdom for us all. Uh, But that means God has made him to become for us the one who redeems us from sin and leads us to holiness, ethical behavior that is consonant with the gospel. Now, salvation in Christ, so powerful. You ever heard the expression, uh, familiarity breeds contempt? Sometimes we become so familiar with the gospel. And we've become so familiar with our Christian lives that we forget 
that salvation is really a powerful, wonderful, magnificent event effected by the grace of God. And so, in Christ, it's all you need. All I need to stand blameless before God, all I need to stand blameless before his throne is in Christ. And all I need to be redeemed from sin is in Christ. By the way, that goes for us today just as sure as it went for us on the first day of our conversion. All that I need to be delivered, redeemed from sin is in Christ. All I need to be led in the paths of holiness is in Christ. He he is all we need. Then Paul says, so that... So this is why God does what he does. You ready? So that, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. (laughs) So that. Here is why, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become wisdom from God to us, Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Here's why God does what he does. So that God does what he does in the way that he does it to demolish human pride and to exalt himself and his son. If God were to say, this is how, this is how salvation is going to work. I'll do my part, you do your part. Do you think we would ever glory in God's part? Or do you think we would just glory in our part? (laughs) That's the way that we're wired. That's the way that we're bent. If God's, you know, even if God said, listen, I'll do 99 and 44 one hundredths and you can do what does that leave us with? 60, 56, 100. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you're not saved by math either. And God says, just that, all you got to do is that much, just that much. For all of eternity, we'd be like, look what I did. I am 56, 100. Wow. I am something. And God says, no, you know what? I'm going to do this in a way that is all of me so that when the boasting starts, you boast in me and not in yourself. God actually cares about that. Why does he care about that? I am the Lord. I will not share my glory with another. God is, God is absolutely, thoroughly committed to making sure that he gets all of the glory on the last day because that's right. 
It is wrong. It is idolatrous for him to share the glory with his creatures. He alone is worthy of all of the glory. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to save in the way that I'm going to save so that I can demolish any sense of you trying to take claims for it. And so that I myself with my son and my spirit receive all the glory. And the way Paul does this is he employs Jeremiah 9.24, which, by the way, was Jeremiah's way of actually trying to humble Israel to keep it from depending on its own wisdom. And here's the phrase, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, in the Bible, there's good boasting and there's bad boasting. I'll give you an example of bad boasting. Well, you know, the Cardinals are the number one team in all of the NFL. Okay. All right. Maybe that's not the best example, but it's the one that just sort of stuck in my head. We're, okay, listen, we are natural boasters. You ever notice that? We're natural boasters. It doesn't even matter what it is. I mean, you, you, could, you can boast about uh, your, your car. You can boast about, I mean, we're just natural boasters. We love glorying in things. We love bragging about things. And God says, you know what? When it comes right down to it, in this whole venture of salvation, I'm going to make sure that I do it in such a way that the only person you're able to brag about is me. So the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. No human grounds for boasting. No human merit in the boasting. No human achievement in the boasting. Our only boast is in Christ. How does the apostle put it in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14? God forbid, may it never be, that I would boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. Our salvation, our very existence in Christ Jesus, is all of God, not of us. And we can only boast in what God has done for us not what we think we've done for ourselves. How we should be loud mouth boasters for what Jesus has done for us. We boast about the stupidest stuff and here we have the king of the universe who's shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, given us eternal life, given us righteousness, holiness, redemption. And Paul says, there's something to boast about. There's something to glory in. This will date me a little bit, but when I was a new Christian, I loved listening to the music of Andre Crouch. Remember Andre Crouch? Anybody? I know Steve. Arnie, Bev, yeah, (laughs) I'm feeling older by the minute. Andre Crouch and the disciples 
and he did a song that I just, I loved to sing. I had a, I had a cassette tape of Andre Crouch, and he did a song called My Tribute. And I thought to myself today, I listened to it over and over again. And I thought, how fitting for this passage. How can I say thanks for all the things you've done for me? Things so undeserved, yet you gave to prove your love for me. And the voices of a million angels could not express my gratitude. All that I am and ever hope to be, I owe it all to thee. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. To God be the glory for the things he has done. With his blood, he has saved me. With his power, he has raised me. To God be the glory for the things he has done. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise tonight. We boast in you. You did for us what we could never do for ourselves. To you alone be the glory. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who has become wisdom from you to us. Father, we thank you for the most amazing gift of salvation. A salvation which really saves. A salvation which is complete. A salvation which gives us all the righteousness that you require. A salvation that transforms us. A salvation that delivers us from sin. Both now, Lord, and one of these days forever. And so, Father, we give you thanks and praise tonight. Father, we ask that we, like the psalmist, would be those whose praise, your praise, is continually upon our lips. To you be the glory. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.